Peace and assalamu alaikum everyone. My name is Mumtahana Ansari and I welcome you to the That Ansari Life podcast. Here we'll be discussing myriad topics such as health and alternative healing, homeschooling and education from an autodidactic perspective, race and politics, spirituality and religion, sexual stimulation and spiritual love making it truly so so much more excerpts from books i find relevant as well as samples of my own writings from poems short stories and scripts will be highlighted also guests will be invited to be interviewed or give countering ideas please listen often comment ask questions And if you enjoy it here, please support by telling your friends to stop by also. Now, without further ado. I watched an interview the other day of actor and comedian Tommy Davidson. He talked about being discarded in the trash as an infant, then being saved by a white woman and her family who raised him as their own. He went on to explain how later, when they moved from the country to the city, the black kids in their neighborhood would beat him and his brother and sister relentlessly and called his siblings white crackers. Hearing his story returned me to my own childhood. I began learning about race and racism in my grandfather's home at a very early age. My high yellow mother and all her equally huge siblings had the same Afro-Native father and Irish-German mother Yet, with the exception of my mother and her next oldest sister, they all made it clear among themselves what they thought about whiteness. White cracker this, white bitch that, was what they resorted to shouting at one another if the occasion so demanded. For the sake of accuracy, I will say that while I was learning from my aunts and uncles down the hill that white was not right, I was getting the same teachings up the hill where my stepfather's family lived, and darker-toned people were prominent in the neighborhood. They also made it clear that being white was not cool when they'd angrily accuse me of being a white girl. Hey, girl, what you is? You white? No, I'd reply shyly. Yes, you is. You ain't black. Interestingly enough, up the hill being too black was even worse than being too light. The paper bag test kids came up with all kinds of creative insults for the deeper complexioned. They'd say things like, you black Jesus, or you so black, you purple, or call them things like blurple, which was a combination of black and purple, and black Moses, as a way to demean. Around my grandfather's way, There were dark-skinned folks, but light-skinned Latinos dominated the area, so I felt more comfortable seeing others who resembled me outside of my home. Not that I can remember anyone besides my own family making a big deal about skin color at all, so I wouldn't have been uncomfortable there solely based on my appearance. But I had learned that people tended to see me differently, so I subconsciously felt self-conscious. In addition to all this, My mother had taught me when I was about four or five that black people were the original beings of earth and favored in the eyes of Allah. She told me this once. In my mother's home, we never talked race. We were black and proud. White people or complexions didn't warrant a discussion, and that was that. 
However, I couldn't help but learn what was and wasn't socially appropriate. I had to as a matter of propriety. I needed to know that a lot of black guys, for some reason, loved me for being light and wanted to be my boyfriend because of it. While a lot of black girls, for some reason, hated me for being light and wanted to fight me because of it. I needed to know that many believed I got special privileges from whites, which was always mind-boggling to me because there were literally no whites around us. And they were likely upset because if it was still slavery, I would have been a house nigga living it up indoors with master. I also needed to know that I was generally thought to be conceited for no reason other than I was light. Once when I was about 22, I was going into a supermarket wearing a t-shirt that read, Do Something. A dark-skinned security guard who I had seen plenty of times standing outside the store asked me what it meant. I explained it was a new organization I was part of, and we worked to do a lot of things within the black community. Oh, he said, I always thought you were conceited. Why? I wanted to know, but he could not give me an answer, so I just walked away offended and annoyed. Regardless of how others perceive lightness as a privilege or detriment, for me, this color I have essentially been stuck with can be a hassle. Not because I myself see it as a detriment, but because it keeps me and others who look like me from being fully accepted by our own. I am a black woman, plain and simple. Not like Rachel Dolezal, who self-proclaimed blackness experts probably would have considered blacker than me before the truth came out. No. She had to pretend African lineage. I do not. My people are West Afri African by way of the Bahama Islands. I know this from DNA testing, but more so from the language, customs, and spiritual practices of the elder women of my Caribbean ancestry. Furthermore, I am so light complexioned because my paternal grandmother was a white woman, not because I am offspring of Massa. The idea of that is far too silly and profound to allow a mere second or two, so I'll save that discussion for another episode. Colorism in the black community is such a deep-rooted and hurtful reality that it will likely take another century or more to stop and reverse the effects of it. For now, this is my story, a commentary on how being a light-skinned black woman truly is not all people think it is cracked up to be. When I eventually got around to reading the Black of the Berry, I was floored. I had seen the book here and there over the years in black bookstores and such, but for some reason, I just wasn't vibing with it. And so, you know, never actually picked it up and flipped through it or anything. But when I finally did, what an amazing book, is actually a literary classic um, written and published during the, Har the Harlem Renaissance by um, Wallace Thurman. It was published in 1929. And I think the thing that really struck me is how um, relevant 
and not only relevant to our modern times, the uh, story is, but how it can be absolutely applied to now in 2019, uh, to uh, 2010 or 2011, whenever it was I read the book, to each and every decade since it was written, and I'm sure before it was written. Uh, it's very profound, I suppose, would be a good word for it. And I really encourage any and everyone to read that book, regardless to race or ethnicity or uh, really any anything that we allow to separate us. Because... Um, I think it lends a great understanding to colorism and prejudices which take place within the black community. I'm sure there must be some sort of uh, interactions here and there in the book with the main character, Emma Lou Morgan, um, her having with white people. I just simply, I can't think of one uh perhaps maybe if there were interactions with whites in the book i guess they just didn't um stand out well enough for me to remember them but i do remember several incidences pertaining to other black people uh because i guess i may have already mentioned it actually deals with issues within the black community and for her specifically because Emma Lou is a very very dark-skinned young African-American woman and so the book uh, follows her on her journey really for acceptance. So what I'm going to do now is read a little bit from the first chapter just to give you an idea of where it's going to go okay? Emma Lou, Chapter One. More acutely than ever before, Emma Lou began to feel that her luscious black complexion was somewhat of a liability, and that her marked color variation from the other people in her environment was a decided curse. Not that she minded being black. Being a Negro necessitated having colored skin. But she did mind being too black. She couldn't understand why such should be the case, couldn't comprehend the cruelty of the natal attenders who had allowed her to be dipped, as it were, in indigo ink when there were so many more pleasing colors on nature's palette. Biologically, it wasn't necessary either. Her mother was quite fair, so was her mother's mother and her mother's brother and her mother's brother's son. But then none of them had had a black man for a father. Why had her mother married a black man? Surely there had been some eligible brown-skinned men around. She didn't particularly desire to have had a high yellow father, but for her sake certainly some more happy medium could have been found. She wasn't the only person who regretted her darkness either. It was an acquired family characteristic, this moaning and grieving over the color of her skin. Everything possible had been done to alleviate the unhappy condition, 
every suggested agent had been employed. For her skin, despite bleachings, scourings, and powderings, had remained black, fast black, as nature had planned and affected. She should have been born a boy. Then color of skin wouldn't have mattered so much. For wasn't her mother always saying that a black boy could get along, but that a black girl would never know anything but sorrow and disappointment? But she wasn't a boy. She was a girl. And color did matter. Mattered so much that she would rather have missed receiving her high school diploma than have to sit as she now sat, the only odd and conspicuous figure on the auditorium platform of the Boise High School. Why had she allowed them to place her in the center of the first row? And why had they insisted upon her dressing entirely in white so that, surrounded as she was by similarly attired pale-faced fellow graduates she resembled, not at all remotely, that comic picture her Uncle Joe had hung in his bedroom? The picture wherein the black kinky head of a little red-lipped pickaninny lay like a fly in a pan of milk amid a white expanse of bedclothes. But of course, she couldn't have worn blue or black when the call was for the wearing of white, even if white was not complimentary to her complexion. She would have been odd-looking anyway, no matter what she wore, and she would also have been conspicuous, for not only was she the only dark-skinned person on the platform, she was also the only Negro pupil in the entire school and had been for the past four years. Well, thank goodness the principal would soon be through with his monotonous farewell address, and she and the other members of her class would advance to the platform center as their names were called and receive the documents which would signify their unconditional release from public school. As she thought of these things, Emily glanced at those who sat to the right and to the left of her. She envied them their obvious elation, yet felt a strange sense of superiority because of her immunity for the moment for the moment from an ephemeral mob mob emotion. Get a diploma? What did it mean to her? College? Perhaps. A job? Perhaps again. She was going to have a high school diploma, but it would mean nothing to her whatsoever. The tragedy of her life was that was that she was too black. Her face and not a slender roll of ribbon-bound parchment was to be her future identification tag in society. High school diploma indeed. What she needed was an efficient bleaching agent, a magic cream that would remove this unwelcome black mask from her face and make her more like her fellow men. The darker the berry, the sweeter the juice is an age-old mantra used throughout the African-American community as a means to prove that the darker or more melanated someone is, the better she or he is compared to others. Now, I know as well as you do, everyone who repeats this of him or herself does not embrace this as a truth. Again, my being a very light-skinned black person born and raised in a black community I've experienced a lot of flack about my complexion, although I had as much say so as how I was born as anyone else. However, what I've come to realize over the years is that people who teased or bullied me about my appearance were only projecting what they believed about themselves. They didn't fit in. They didn't measure up. They weren't good enough. 
By now, many people know about Willie Lynch's instructional guide for slave owners titled, How to Make a Slave. If you have not heard or read this before, I suggest you do a quick Google search and do so. I believe you will find it is actually quite profound. Now, I will forewarn you. The Willie Lynch letter is a bit controversial because some say he really existed as a white West Indian slave owner who would tour plantations teaching other owners how to break their slaves. And some say he didn't exist at all and the manual is simply made up. In light of both sides of the argument, I really must ask, does it really matter? Whomever wrote How to Make a Slave, you must admit that it is quite poignant and as relevant today as it ever was. The papers essentially teach how to get enslaved people of the African diaspora to accept their subjugation without resistance. Some of the ways that he suggested making this so were to pit the, pit the young slave against the old slave, the male slave against the female slave, the light slave against the dark slave, and so on. It goes on to guarantee that if the owner followed the guide verbatim, he would eventually not have to do anything to ensure his slaves follow along nicely, for they would in fact enslave themselves for the next 100 years. These papers, whether original or fabricated, appear to be accurate beyond anyone's worst fears. Emancipation of most Africans and African Americans in this land ended approximately 150 years ago. If you look, it should be obvious that everything the book says is what we still participate in as a people. Young people no longer respect their elders. As each day passes, men and women seem to have less and less respect for one another. And colorism is still highly prevalent in the black and brown community, rearing its head in all kinds of conspicuous and inconspicuous ways. Maybe some of the most obvious manifestations are women who bleach their skin to appear lighter, but dark women are not the only ones who sometimes feel the pressure pertaining to their melanin levels. I'll always remember being pregnant with my first child, Mourid. I don't recall ever not liking being light. The same way I've never disliked my having a different hand that I was born with, my complexion is not something I thought about much until I had to. Allah made me this way, so I was okay with however I looked. Besides, I couldn't change my color if I wanted to, so what was the point in not liking myself? However, I've always been aware that the dark woman and man is Allah's original idea of what humans should look like, and so I respected and embraced that reality. During Marie's gestational period, I will always pray that he will be born dark. Not just darker than me but dark. In hindsight, that prayer was kind of comical in a way because Marie's father Teule is red, more so like the Lenape ancestors of his mother than African ancestors of his father. Nonetheless, I knew virtually all things are possible by way of the Creator, and you know what? My faith paid off. When Marie was born and they placed him on my chest, he was so dark like Nigerian dark, in absolute contrast to myself. By the time they brought him to me an hour or so later, he had lightened dramatically, but for the next 13 years, he would be a light tannish brown, still considered light-skinned to most blacks, yet brown, 
which was still satisfying to me. <laughs> then something amazing happened. When Murid was 13, we got a wonderful offer for him to study the Arabic language in Cairo, Egypt for the entire summer. There was a black Muslim brother, Brother Shakur, who was taking a whole group of Muslim children from the neighborhood free of charge. My very good friend to this day, Brother Duane, worked at the brother's school and was chaperoning. He thought of us and extended the offer to Murid, which we happily and eagerly accepted. I still remember when I first laid eyes on my son after two and a half months. He came in the back door of our restaurant, and I turned around to hug and kiss him, and he was dark. I was fascinated. I figured the African son had just baked him and his tan would soon fade, but it turned out not to be simply a tan. I suppose the son somehow activated the melanin in his skin because he has been the same tone ever since. Sometimes we laugh together if he makes a statement about his precious skin tone. I'll say, you're welcome, because you know I'm the one who prayed for you to be dark, right? <laughs> what irony, though. I asked for him to be dark so he wouldn't feel the harsh lash of interceptance from his own people as I and all my mother's family, family had. But it was still no use. The other black boys around him deemed him not black at all. And so they would jump on every chance they got for being Haitian. Willie would be so proud. Your hair is nappy. Who's your pappy? You show as an ugly child. I remember these words being scrawled on the dingy hallway wall of my grandfather's home. He lived on the second floor of a three-family house at 152 Pennsylvania Avenue, right on the corner of Miller Street on the south side of Newark, New Jersey, with his elder mother and six of his eight grown and nearly grown children. Seven when my mother was unable to pay rent and came back home toting her own two to three children. In writing for this segment, I decided to Google the racist words that lined the stairway leading up to my grandfather's door. For some reason, I was surprised to find that it was actually a song called Ugly Child, made and remade by at least four singers during the 1920s to 1950s. George Brunis, Johnny Mercer, Sam Third, and Oda Lee Patterson, two white men, a black man, and a white woman, all recorded this Dixieland tune with some variation. Here are a bit of the lyrics. Hey, you're ugly, man. You're ugly. You're some ugly child. The clothes you wear are not in style. You look like an ape every time you smile. How I hate you, you alligator bait you. You don't. Why don't you lay down and die? Oh, you're knock-kneed, pigeon-toed, box-ankle, too. There's a curse in your family, and it fell on you. Your hair is nappy. Who's your pappy? You some ugly child. You're a Bigfoot, barefoot, slew-footed, too. How'd they ever get a pair of shoes on you? Your hair is nappy. Who's your pappy? You're some ugly child. I don't know when or where this song originated, but it found its way decades later into the eyes and minds of a bunch of little black children who thought it profound or funny or relevant enough to scratch on the wall of their abode. I wonder what archaeologists would think had they the opportunity to study that tiny panel 40 years ago 
as they do the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt or cuneiform of Samaria. What would they conclude about us? One of my aunts used to sometimes say to me, Muta, you got nigger here like your father. As a child, I didn't quite know what to think of that. I knew it was meant to be derogatory, yet since my father was not in my life, I liked the fact that there was something somebody saw that connected me to him. What she meant was that I had black people here, very black people here. My father is a brown-skinned man with an African-American father and Bahamian-American mother. His hair is what's biblically known as like lamb's wool. His is what Bengal afros derive from, magnificent halos that frame the face of Angela Davis, Michael Jackson, the last poets, Ungawa sisters and brothers near and far, and perhaps even the Messiah himself. The truth is, and I didn't realize it then, my aunt also had black people here. Not because she was obviously black, but because black people don't only have one texture of hair, not in Africa, not even in her own household. Her hair was the type that could go from woolly-ish to jerry curlesque by simply adding water and lots and lots of hair grease. She had two brothers who had Afro-grade tresses and two with silky, naturally large curls, while all three sisters, including my mother, had silky straight hair that fell well past their shoulders. However, hair and the way it naturally grows out of our scalps is a very touchy subject in a black community. Obvious by the billion-dollar black hair care industry that now exists in this country and abroad. I was born into the nation of Islam, and though you wouldn't be able to tell these days, Elijah Muhammad was against women relaxing their hair because he believed, as did W.E.B. Du Bois and other black intellectuals who argued the notion since the advent of Madam's hot combs, that it was detrimental to the esteem of the black woman and therefore her family and community. I remember asking my mother when I was about eight years old, after she had decided to have my hair straightened, but didn't Elijah Muhammad say that we can't straighten our hair, Mommy? Yes, he said we shouldn't straighten our hair to look like white women, but he said it's okay to put a warm comb through it sometimes. I didn't understand that logic then or now. Wasn't it still being straightened? But my stepfather's sister had convinced her that she needed to do something with that girl's hair, all those nigger naps. And so she did in hopes of making my social life easier. I was already being picked on for being light, bright, damn near white, and for having a deformed hand. My mother didn't know what it was like to go through life with nigger naps, but she knew how hard it was to be different, so reluctantly chose to protect her child from the world. I don't know if you have ever experienced having your hair straightened, but it is one of the most torturous events you could possibly think of doing to a child, or anyone for that matter. Imagine placing a metal comb over an open fire until it's smoking, then taking that piping hot metal and slowly pulling it through well-oiled hair, as close to the scalp as possible without purposely touching, the only halfway saving grace being the blowing from your stylus lips onto said metal. It was commonplace for black women and girls to have random brown scabs on their scalps and the edges of their ears from the comb scorches. After a while, the hot comb and the agony it brought started to be put on the back burner, so to say, 
when at-home relaxers like Dark and Lovely and permanent wave kits like Luster Silk became available. Of course, my mother, at the prodding of her sister-in-law, allowed her to apply each of those to my hair. I don't remember the outcome of the relaxer, but the curl was a disaster. I can still see my horrible do formed into a terrible would-be, could-be, but definitely was not afro as I walked to sixth grade. Any hopes my mother had for me to not be bullied due to my hair never saw the light of day. Finally, I began to teach myself how to cornrow my own hair. I wasn't the best, but one attached braid down the side and back of each side of my head like the neighborhood girls wore was far more efficient than that wreck of a fro. By the time I hit 12, I knew how to straighten my own hair and did so often. By 14, applying a relaxer, we wrongfully called a perm, was no problem. It wasn't until I was 16 that I returned to my mother's original teachings and stopped treating my hair to make it more manageable, as I've heard so many say to justify to themselves why their own hair is not good enough. Over the years, I've turned to corn braids, box braid extensions, goddess sprays, afros, flat twists, china bumps, which are now called bantu knots, Caesar cuts, and finally locks. I love my hair not only because I believe it is a gift from the one Allah's Isla, but because it connects me to my people, to my history. I often say jokingly of the strangers who think I'm Middle Eastern, white, or anything other than black. If they saw my hair, they know exactly what I am. I love my hair and embrace its majesty. I only wish that millions of my sisters would wash out the idea that they have nigger hair and stop braiding, sewing, and gluing other people's so-called good hair into their own. I feel so bad for the babies who were taught from day one that they are not good enough. My fear is that they will not even stand a chance.